Welcome to the Shift Gold Friday Gold Wrap, your overview of this week's news impacting the precious metals markets. It's Friday, February 10th. I'm your host, Mike Meharry. Thanks for tuning in. You know, history may not repeat, but it definitely rhymes sometimes. So that's why I've been looking a lot at the run-up to the 2008 financial crisis. And as I do, it's looking a lot more like 2003 rhymes with 2007. I've talked several times about the fact that I'm convinced that something big is going to break in the economy. But I think it may take longer for that to happen than I did initially. You know, in our microwave 30-second soundbite world, it's easy to forget that the impact of things like monetary policy, it takes time for them to manifest. So, you know, I see something like quantitative easing when they're printing trillions of dollars month after month. And and it's easy to think, well, this is just going to wreck the economy, and it is, but it often happens in slow motion. You know, it's a it's the slow motion disaster. So, you know, it's the reality is you don't raise rates today and, and see the economy radically shift tomorrow. It takes months and and sometimes even years before we actually feel the impacts of a given policy. I I really think the 08 financial crisis and the Great Recession are informative, though, because it's a similar scenario, right? The Fed slashed interest rates in the early O's after the dot-com bubble popped, and it blew up a housing bubble. And then it started raising rates, and eventually the housing bubble popped. That's what broke in the economy in 2008, but it took a while for all of that to play out. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I talked about how interest rates actually peaked in June 2006. So that was the height of the interest rate increases. The Fed held them there until September 2007 when home sales plunged. So we saw the housing market kind of breaking in mid-2007 going into the fall. And it was still almost a year later before we really got into the depths of the Great Recession. Anyway, they kept cutting rates in 2008 because they could see the shakiness in the housing market. But of course, they insisted that uh, it was you know, contained. It was just subprime. There was really nothing to worry about. But you know, making some little rate cuts here and there just to make sure things are all right. That happened through 2008. And then they finally went to zero after Lehman failed and the poo really hit the proverbial fan. All of that to say that there was a pretty significant time lapse between the peak interest rates in that cycle in 2006 and that first rate cut in September of 2007. And if you believe the Fed, we haven't even hit the peak of this tightening cycle yet. Now, whether they'll actually be able to get there or not, that's a a whole nother question. But uh, regardless, we're, we're not there yet. The Fed says we may have a couple of more uh, 25 basis point hikes, and that, of course, would put rates at over 5% again. Now, I've asked this question before. I'm going to ask it again. If the economy in 2006-2007 couldn't handle rates that high, what makes anybody think that it can handle rates like that today with more debt and more malinvestment in the economy? I think Uh, The answer is self-evident. And of course, I've talked uh, uh, quite often before about what happened in 2018 when the Fed started finally 
tightening in earnest uh, after keeping rates artificially low for nearly a decade after the Great Recession. Uh, It was more aggressive in rate hikes in 2018. You'll remember that they were doing balance sheet reduction and it was on autopilot. And then the stock market crashed in the fall of 2018. And the last rate hike was in December of 2018. We had three rate cuts in 2019, uh, even before covid so the reality is, even at that point, the economy couldn't even handle like 2.5% interest rates. We're way above that now. Now, of course, you know, the pandemic really skewed the playing field a lot. It gave the Federal Reserve, it gave the U.S. government an excuse. It kind of papered over the problems that were already in the economy due to a decade of easy money and then trying to tighten. Uh, They were able to kind of avoid the consequences of that because they were able to put quantitative easing on steroids, put fiscal stimulus on steroids, pump trillions of dollars into the economy, you know, blew all the bubbles up, again, reinflated them and blew them up even bigger. And here we are today. Uh, and, and of course, you know, the dynamics are different. We have uh, high inflation now. So that's a, uh, a, a kind of a different dynamic than even that we had back in um, uh, 2018. So things are different, but, you know, they're kind of the same. And here's the thing, at the risk of sounding like a broken record, because I've said this multiple times, the U.S. economy is built on a foundation of easy money and debt. When you take away the easy money, when you take away the quantitative easing, when you take away the artificially low interest rates, debt becomes more expensive, and that foundation rots away. The malinvestments get exposed. And when you have a rotting foundation, ultimately the house falls down. Now, I don't think the next crash is going to look just like 2008. I think it'll be significantly different. I don't see a a housing crisis being the, the thing that breaks. It'll be something else. I don't even know what. The dynamics are completely different. As I mentioned, we have, you know, high inflation. Uh, there are things in the economy that are different today than there were then. But the fundamentals are the same. We have the same easy money policy blowing up bubbles that are going to pop. So the history will most likely rhyme, if not repeat. So this is really all a setup to talk about a little 2007-2023 rhyme that I ran across this week. So you know the narrative now is uh, soft landing. We have disinflation and a strong economy, according to the powers that be. So more and more people are thinking that the Fed can get inflation back to 2% while avoiding dipping the economy into a recession. Or if it is a recession, it'll be short and shallow. No big deal. In fact, after last week's Bureau of Labor Statistics non-farm payroll report, there are some people that are actually worried that the economy is too strong and that the Fed may actually have to take interest rates even higher, might have to get more aggressive in the inflation fight. And that, of course, resulted in a big sell-off in gold that took the yellow metal back under $1,900 an ounce. So anyway, check out this headline, U.S. Economy on Track for Soft Landing. And here's the first couple of paragraphs of this article. Quote, U.S. inflation pressures are easing and the economy should manage a soft landing, the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas said on Wednesday. Quote, The latest data reinforced the impression of an economy in which growth remains moderate and inflationary pressures are likely to continue to subside, it said in a National Economic Review written by senior Dallas Fed staff economist Tao Wu. 
Sounds about right, yeah. This is pretty much the mainstream narrative. But there's a little twist. This article that I just quoted was written on September 26th, 2007. They were saying everything is fine in September 2007, just like they're telling you everything is fine today. Now, we know history, and we know everything certainly wasn't fine in the fall of 2007. We were less than a year away from a complete meltdown of the economy and the Great Recession. So, if you don't think history rhymes, who cares, right? But you darn well better be able to explain to me, this time, why it's different. Why should I believe that the Fed can do something today that it couldn't do then? What's so different today that the Fed is going to pull off this soft landing and this get inflation under control? Oh, 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 I know. We have the most awesome labor market ever. No. No, we don't. So let's look at the BLS non-farm payroll report that we got last Friday. Now, I don't know about you, but when I saw the January numbers, my initial reaction was, no way. I mean, I've been reading the headlines about all of the job cuts, and I'm supposed to believe that the economy added over 500,000 jobs in January? Something smells fishy here. As Tony, our analyst here at Shift Gold, put it, maybe we should take the L out of BLS and just go with BS. Tony wrote, how can anyone look at the environment and then take such a job report seriously? This is the type of job report you would expect to see at the height of an economic cycle where the economy is firing on all cylinders. The BLS numbers are already hard to take at face value. I'll link to the full report that he wrote on the, uh, the employment numbers on the show notes page. He digs into the nuts and bolts of this BLS report. But regardless, if you're skeptical like me, it turns out that your skepticism is warranted. Now, the mainstream got all giddy and breathless. They were using adjectives like, ooh, stunner, and wow, to describe this job report. But as with so many government numbers, you have to take a little closer look. A recent article published by MarketWatch did just that and found that there are five significant reasons to think the big January number was an anomaly and not a sign of a roaring economy. First off, we've got Morgan Stanley economists who offered three basic reasons that even if these are real numbers, January was probably a one-off anomaly and gave a false impression about the actual state of the labor market. Number one, unusually warm weather. Number two, and into California's higher education strike that, bring, uh, that brought a bunch of people off the unemployment rolls. And three, a very strong upward seasonal adjustment to the data. Now, the seasonal adjustment thing, that's interesting to look at. You know, a lot of businesses release seasonal workers in January after the holiday season. We all know this. You know, you have a big hiring in October uh, for the Christmas season, and then folks work through that season, and then they're laid off in January once uh, business slows down. So the BLS adjusts for this uh, with quote-unquote season adjustments, and that smooths out the employment data over the course of the year. They do these seasonal adjustments with every um, report. So in effect, the BLS makes up some numbers to adjust the data. Now, I can't really emphasize this enough. They make these numbers up. 
It's like the CPI, right? They use formulas and they use assumptions. So the numbers are only as good as the formulas and the assumptions. And of course, the formulas and assumptions can be changed on a whim. And of course, I always assume that if the government is doing formulas and assumptions, uh, it's going to err on the side of making itself look good, right? Uh, it's kind of interesting because if you go back to the 1970s, they used a completely different formula uh, to calculate unemployment than they do today. The formulas that they use today and the assumptions that they make today actually understate unemployment compared to the 70s. So when you hear this is the lowest unemployment since whatever year, you have to remember that they measure it differently. If they were measuring it the same way, uh, the unemployment rate would be much higher today uh, than it's actually being reported. So you're not comparing apples to apples when you hear those kind of comparisons. Anyway, according to the Cato Institute, without seasonal adjustments, the 517,000 job gain in seasonally adjusted payrolls turned into an unadjusted 2,505,000 job loss. You heard that right. We went from 517,000 new jobs to minus 2,500,000 plus jobs lost. Now, the seasonal adjustment number may be warranted, or maybe not. Remember, it's a made-up number. You see big adjustments every January. If you go back and look at a chart, you'll see that actual employment numbers always drop in January, so they do this seasonal adjustment. So it's not unprecedented. But the adjustment this year seems particularly large, and it should at least make you go, hmm. Here's what one economist said about it. Whoa, the BLS job report for January was very strong. So strong, I don't believe it. The BLS is likely having measurement issues, most likely difficulty seasonally adjusting the data, which is especially important in January. This January was the fifth warmest on record. Now, I mentioned the warm weather uh, earlier. That is particularly impactful on outdoor jobs, so construction. If you have a, a really cold winter with a lot of snow, people can't work, they get laid off. Um, and, and so seasonal adjustments will actually adjust for that as well. So we had a warmer than normal January, uh, which probably skewed the data some. Here's what economist Murray Rothbard said about any kind of adjustments to any kind of government data. I think we should do well to keep his observation here in mind. He said, the further one gets from the raw data, the further one gets from reality, and therefore the more erroneous any concentration upon that figure. Seasonal adjustments in data are not as harmless as they seem. For seasonal patterns, even for such products as fruit and vegetables, are not set in concrete. Seasonal patterns change, and they change in unpredictable ways. And hence, seasonal adjustments are likely to add extra distortions to the data. So we have big seasonal adjustments. I think if you believe what Rothbard said, uh, we can expect that there were significant distortions to the data. There's another factor that few people out there in the mainstream seem to be talking about at all, and that's the fact that most of these jobs are part-time. Since September, month-to-month -month employment growth in full-time jobs has been negative, so we've lost full-time jobs. Meanwhile, growth in part-time jobs has been positive, so we're seeing a shrinking number of full-time jobs and a growing number of part-time jobs.
Um, Ryan McMakin over at the Mises Institute pointed out that this rotation from full-time to part-time employment usually indicates a looming recession. We saw it happen in 1981, 1990, 2001, 2008, 2020, and now it's happening again in 2023. So again, if you believe that history rhymes, you should probably look at that and go, mm. but don't worry. Jerome Powell says there's going to be a soft landing. Here's the reality. The fact that people are moving from full-time to part-time work, the fact that more people are taking on extra part-time work to make ends meet, and the fact that more retired people are going back into the job market because inflation is eating up their retirement, does not scream, this is a strong economy, as Joe Biden and others would have you believe. In fact, it is quite the opposite. This reveals an economy with a rotting foundation. Finally, Market Watch highlights a Philadelphia Federal Reserve report called the Quarterly Census of Employment and Wages that casts even more doubt on the BLS numbers. In a nutshell, the QCEW estimates that the BLS data overstated the number of jobs created by roughly 1 million jobs in Q2. So if you go back to Q2, you look at the jobs numbers that they gave us, which were all great and wonderful. This report is saying that that was overstated by roughly 1 million jobs. Now, this quarterly census of employment and wages, it's a much more detailed report. It's probably more accurate, and it takes a long time for it comes for it to come out. So the next one's supposed to come out, I think, at the end of this month for Q3. Um, but anyway, if you're looking at a overestimation of roughly 1 million jobs in Q2, again, this should just call into question this crazy... Uh, job report that we got in January. It doesn't pass the smell test. So, you know, again, if they didn't get things right in Q2 and it was overestimating job gains then, why should we believe January's data? It's just, it's out of whack. So the bottom line is you should probably take the headlines generated by this latest non-farm payroll report with a healthy dose of salt. In fact, it almost seems like Jerome Powell is because, you know, even after that, he had a speech um, after the report came out early this week, and he wasn't any more hawkish than uh, he was during the FOMC meeting. So they didn't look at this job report and say, oh my God, this is, you know, the economy is just booming and we're going to have to be more aggressive. He didn't say any of that. So I think even the Fed is taking this with a grain of salt. I want to close out the show just touching on the extraordinary level of central bank gold buying uh, through the last half of 2022, uh, and, and really 2022 as a whole. I got an email from the World Gold Council uh, that was actually correcting their 2022 gold demand report. Initially, they said that the 1,136 tons of gold bought by central banks was the second highest level since 1950. As it turns out, it was the highest level since 1950. And they've only been tracking this data since 1950. So, uh, in effect, uh, 2022 was a record year for central bank gold buying. I think one of the most interesting things in the central bank sphere is the fact that China officially started buying gold again in November and then made another large purchase of 30 tons in December. That raised China's total gold reserves to over 2,000 tons for the first time ever. Now, the Chinese central bank accumulated 1,448 tons of gold between 20. 
2002 and 2019. And then it suddenly just stopped buying, at least officially. Now, many people speculate that the Chinese continued to add gold to uh, its holdings off the books during those silent years. And in fact, there were large unreported purchases of gold by central banks in the last half of last year. And and basically, that just means that um, looking at the movement of gold, it's clear that there was a big purchase, but it wasn't officially recorded anywhere. So we don't know exactly who did it. It was probably China or maybe Russia or possibly both making these unreported purchases. According to the World Gold Council, there are two main drivers behind central bank gold buying. It's performance during times of crisis and its role as a long-term store of value. Quote, it's hardly surprising then that in a year scarred by geopolitical uncertainty and rampant inflation, central banks opted to continue adding gold to their coffers and at an accelerated pace. And I think there's another issue at play. A lot of countries, especially China, want to minimize their exposure to the U.S. dollar. And can you blame them? Not only does the U.S. keep pumping new dollars out, devaluing the ones that the Chinese and other countries already have in their hands, America has this nasty habit of using the dollar as a foreign policy billy club. Now, you might think, this is justified. You might think it's good policy. That's an argument for another day. But you certainly can't blame countries that might be in the U.S. crosshairs from wanting to avoid getting pushed around by U.S. economic power. So it behooves them to hold less gold and more, or, I'm sorry, it behooves them to hold fewer dollars and more of something else. And that something else, of course, is gold. I really think U.S. policymakers would be wise to keep that in mind, given that they depend on the world to gobble up all of the dollars it has to keep creating in order to fund its borrow-and-spend government. I mean, it's already got a problem in the fact that the Fed is shrinking its balance sheet. It's not doing quantitative easing. It's not buying U.S. Treasuries. Of course, I don't guess it really matters right now because we have the fake debt ceiling fight going on. So uh, the U.S. government can't really borrow. But once they raise the debt ceiling, and they will raise the debt ceiling, uh, they're going to have to sell a whole bunch of Treasuries really fast. Um, it's not good news if uh, countries like China and Japan and other countries are not interested in buying those U.S. treasuries. Anyway, the World Gold Council global head of research, dude named Juan Carlos Artigas, he told Kitco News that the big purchases from central banks underscore the fact that gold remains an important asset in the global monetary system. He said, quote, even though gold is not backing currencies anymore, it is still being utilized. Why? Because it is a real asset, he said. And this is a key reason that you might want to consider holding gold and also silver in your portfolio. They are real assets, and it is good to have real assets in your portfolio. Now, you might not want to hold all gold or all silver, and I've never recommended that. I think some people think, oh, Meharry's a gold bug. He just has gold. No, it's, it's part of an investment strategy. And to that end, I think it's a really good idea for folks to talk to somebody who can tell them about the value of precious metals in their portfolios, because the fact of the matter is most people do not hold physical gold or silver in their portfolios, and they probably should. It is a valuable part of a well-balanced portfolio. If you talk to a shift gold precious metals specialist, they can tell you more about that, and they can look at your individual situation and help you see how 
precious metals may be beneficial for your investment strategy. Call them at 1-888-GOLD-160 or email them at info at shiftgold.com or just go to shiftgold.com, go to the Getting Started page, and uh, right there you can press on Getting Started and you can actually chat there with a precious metal specialist. Do that today uh, with gold having dropped a little bit. It's a buying opportunity. Um, I'm inclined to think that this drop is going to be temporary. We were seeing a pretty good steady increase in the price of gold. I think this is a little correction and a buying opportunity. At any rate, that's a gold wrap for this week. You can get more details on all of these stories and more. And of course, keep up with the latest precious metals news and analysis throughout the week at shiftgold.com news. If you haven't done it, you can subscribe to the Friday Gold Wrap at Apple Podcasts on the Shift Gold YouTube channel. We're on Stitcher. We're on Google Podcasts. Uh, we're on others. Links to these things are on the show notes page over at shiftgold.com news. You can email me at mmaharry at shiftgold.com. That's M-M-A-H-A-R-R-E-Y at shiftgold.com. Love hearing from folks. Definitely appreciate the fact that you're taking time out of your day to listen to the show. I hope you enjoyed it. And I'll talk to you again next week.